I'm Sarah Lippman. Welcome to Torati Mecha Nachyomi with the OU Women's Initiative. Today we will be learning Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles, Volume 1, Chapter 3. Many of the principles used in today's lesson are based on the teachings of Rav Moshe Eisman of Baltimore in his magnificent commentary in the Art Scroll Divrei Hayamim and his many recorded classes, for which I am deeply grateful. All errors and misunderstandings are my own. Chapter 3, Verse 1. These were the children of David that were born to him in the city of Hebron. It feels like we just zoomed in a lot on David HaMelech. We came out from chapter 2, where we started with Yaakov's sons, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, and we followed through the line of Yehuda all the way down till Kalev and his family and David's family. And now, instead of going through all these separate people within the tribe, we just came down to David himself and his sons. Not only that, but we're starting to hear some kind of background information, like it's David and he was living in Hebron. And then he had these children with these wives when he was living in Yerushalayim. That's a pretty big change of style from what we were just reading in the last chapter, where it was pure lineage. You'll notice that David's children are divided here between children born in Hebron and children born in Jerusalem. It's possible that's a reflection of something that we learn in Tehillim, Perak 87. With respect to Zion, it will be said, each and every person who was born there is something special. The Gemara explains, there's something unique and special about the power of Jerusalem. And if a person was born there, you would single them out. So why ish va'ish? A person and a person. And ish, of course, is the term for an important person. Why? So the Gemara says, echad had no It applies to a person who was born in Jerusalem. Ve'echad ha'metzapet lerosa. And it also applies to a person who's yearning to get to Jerusalem. They too are a child of Jerusalem. Who they are is being shaped by their desire to reach Jerusalem. This entire chapter has a different tone from what we've seen so far, even as a genealogy among other lists of names. It begins with King David and takes us all the way through many generations following the destruction of the first temple. And we can't avoid asking ourselves, how are we going to read these genealogies? It is difficult to see their relevance. They just seem to be lists, lists upon lists, lists that sometimes duplicate each other, lists that sometimes appear to contradict one another. If we pay attention to the details, these lists get wild. People start showing up in other families. Names change. Names morph. Ezra had the same books of Navi that we do. He had the book of Yehoshua. He had Shoftim. He had Shmuel. He had Malachim. He had Yirmiah and Yeshaya. And he had the Sfarim we have. He could see the inconsistencies that we can see, and so could everyone else around him who accepted his additions to the Torah. Some of these discrepancies are within Ezra's own writings, sometimes even within Divrei Hayamim itself. So we really need to start addressing what is going on. We've already seen that the purpose of Divrei Hayamim is not to be a record of events that have already happened. That exists already. Those are the books of the prophets. Rather, the book of Divrei Hayamim serves to trace the world's progress towards the realization of God's goal for it. Ezra was by no means haphazard. He calculated well, and his inconsistencies were inserted as clues and prods to stimulate our inquiries and lead us to the mysteries that are well concealed beneath the surface simplicity of Chronicle's welter of names and events. 
You'll recall that we've learned that the Midrash in Vayikra Rabbah says, Lonitan Divrihayamim Elali Daresh, that Divrihayamim is given over only really to Drash, homiletical explanation. The Maharal, in his Gur Aryeh commentary on Bereshis, gives us a very helpful definition of what Drash, deeper explanation, looks like. Says the Maharal, I will tell you the method of the sages in Drash. The primary principle is Lashon Nofel Al Lashon, the use of matching or parallel terms. A word expresses an idea, and therefore, if a verse uses certain words, then the pshat, the primary meaning, is what those words say directly, just as they say. But the sages pay close attention to how the verses make their point. If a verse uses an unexpected word, a rare word, an awkward word, then it is clearly directing us to relate the idea of that word to its use somewhere else. They're like hyperlinks embedded within the text. They signal our attention. Thus, the sages assert in the Gemara Nuvamos that even when we do learn a drash from a verse, we nonetheless always understand the verse still means what it says in its straightforward sense. We're just being signaled that we need to look for the deeper message at the same time. This, says Maharal, is the key to understanding drash. It's always related to the text itself. There's always going to be some sort of anomalous terms or some signal in the text itself that indicates this word idea association. Drush is never pulled out of thin air. So that brings us back to this very strange statement in Vayekorabah that lonitan divrei hayamim elili daresh. Divrei hayamim is different. It is meant only to be learned as drash. Divrei hayamim is unique in Tanakh because the simple meaning of the words is primarily meant only to indicate the underlying message or the linked idea. It never stands alone. It's a giant hyperlinked sefer. If we could wrap our heads around this idea, if we could approach these lists that seem so plain and easy in Divrei Hayamim from this perspective that their primary intent is in the drash, suddenly Divrei Hayamim snaps into clearer focus. So we're going to give some examples of this in practice. The major principle to bear in mind, says the Malbim, throughout Divrei Hayamim, is that Ezra was copying from the great genealogical record of every family with all its branches. Ezra chose what was relevant and necessary for specific people, and he omitted anything extra. So, on the one hand, the material in Divrei Hayamim started out as earlier historic, but not necessarily religious, text. It's what Ezra did with the text that elevates them into the Ksuvim. With divine inspiration, with Ruach HaKodesh, he assembled it together, added more information, framed it, and it becomes part of Tanakh. Ezra had the books of the prophets. He had the fragmented royal histories both. Abarbanel writes, Umashashina Ezra, what Ezra changed, Hayabaderach Perush. It was the manner of explaining it. Ezra's changes were made to create deeper explanations embedded in the text. In Divrei Hayamim, he seeks to explain events by means of changing words, changing phrases, even changing names. So what we see as discrepancies in the text are actually carefully chosen signals. With Ezra's divine inspiration and in cooperation with three prophets, Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah, Ezra edited the ancient documents into a new book. He encoded with Drash the messages for the Ketz Hayamim, the end of days, messages that are just not given over to Pshat, to simple explanation. Even then, the Gemara Pesachim says that from the time that the Midrashic teachings of Divrei Hayamim were lost, the strength of the wise ebbed, the light of their eyes dimmed. Says Radak, 
Yesh harbe drashos b'shemos halalu. There are so many drashos that can be given for each of these names. Ve'im banu lidrosh kol hashemos. If we would try to explain all of these names, lama nikruukein, why people were called by this name or that name, lo yechilim sefer. No book would be large enough to contain them. So we're going to have to stick with just what's written here before us. All of these names were references to ideas that were familiar to people, as is referenced in some of them. So we're just not even going to try and chase down the messages where they aren't more clearly signaled to us. So let's learn what we can. We'll be tantalized by hints that call for our attention, and we'll try to have the humility to accept that most of Divrei Hayamim will likely remain hidden from us under the surface until its time has come. Here's a very vivid illustration of this principle. Enlisting the children of David, Habechor Amnon La'achinoam Hayizraelis, Sheni Daniel La'avigayel HaKarmelis, Hashlishi La'avshalom Ben Ma'acha Bastalmai Melech Kishor. The sons of David listed in verse 1 and in the following verses, 3 through 8, are all described following a set pattern. They're described as, quote, the son's name, born to, the mother's name. So, Amnon la Achinoam ha-Yisraelis. Amnon was born to Achinoam, who was from Yisrael. Daniel to Avigail the Carmelis. Shvatia to Avital. Yisraam to Egla. Sheman Shovav Nasan and Shlomo to Bashua Basamiel. There are two exceptions, and they're grouped together in verse 2. The third, Hashlishi, Lav Shalom ben Macha Bastamai Melech Geshur, to Avshalom, the son of Macha, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adoniah, the son of Hagis. Let's look first at the situation with Avshalom, the third son. Avshalom is not described as born to his mother, Le Macha Bastamai, but rather he's described as the son of Macha Bastamai. Furthermore, and even more mysteriously, the letter Lamid, le, meaning to, born to, is attached to Avshalom's own name, to Avshalom, ben Machabastamai, where we would have expected it to say Avshalom, le, Machabastamai. The Lamid should be attached to the person who's the parent, not the person who's the son. The Vilna Gon explains that the verse is drawing our attention away from Avshalom's relationship as David's son and towards Avshalom as the father of David's grandchildren. Why is that? It's because he is Ben Macha. He is the son of Macha, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, a non-Jewish king. Avshalom is not being treated by the verse as David's son, David's legacy. Instead, he's being described as Macha's son, Macha, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, whom David took captive in battle and married in accordance with the relevant halachos of an Isha Yefas Toar, a beautiful captive that are taught in the Torah in Parshas Kisetse. The Malbim adds, Avshalom is truly Ben Macha, Macha's child, because it was Macha who caused Avshalom to grow up as he did. A vain man, thinking only of his appearance, how to win friends and influence people. He rebelled against his father, tried to usurp the crown, and was killed. Avshalom's personality, Avshalom's tragedy, was a direct product of who his mother was. And therefore, the verse here not only associates Avshalom with his mother Macha, it holds him at arm's length from David by adding that Lamed to his name so that it reads, to Avshalom. In other words, there were children born to Avshalom who are now David's descendants, but Avshalom himself is being connected to his mother Macha. 
According to the Vilna Gaon, that Lamed causes us to read off Shalom here as we do the mothers in the passage, a second parent giving birth to David's children as though Avshalom himself were not David's child. According to Malbim, the dissociative effect of the Lamed on Avshalom's name is a change in the sound of its meaning, so that instead of reading Avshalom, whose name could mean father of peace, Avi HaShalom, which Avshalom most certainly was not, now his name sounds like Avshalom, Lo Avshalom, not a father of peace. And thus, with a single letter that almost flies under the radar, with a naming convention that sounds perfectly normal in and of itself, but in its context, it doesn't quite fit in, Ezra evokes the relationships and the influences of the people he's writing about. Not so much what happened to them, but what they made of themselves. Grouped in the same verse with Avshalom is Adoniah ben Chagis. Again, Adoniah here is associated with and attributed to his mother Chagis more than to his father, David HaMelech. You may recall that Adoniah, in the book of Malachim, chapter 1, was cultivating support during his father's lifetime and against his father's wishes, David having chosen Shlomo to succeed him. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says that it was his mother, Chagis, who raised Adoniah to be haughty and presumptuous. Rashi explains in the book of Malachim that Adoniah's mother raised him Ahare of Shalom, following Avshalom, according to the culture and values of how Avshalom's mother, Macha, was raising her son. That was her guide and inspiration and model. So again, a choice of words, Ben Chagis instead of Lechagis, and a verse grouping Adoniah together with Avshalom signal a lesson in what people made of themselves in their situations in life, and most especially, who they emulated, who they learned from. Verses 10 through 16 comprise a full genealogy of the kings of the house of David, starting with Shlomo HaMelech and his son Rechavam, and going all the way through to Tzidkiyahu, who was king of Yehuda at the time of the Babylonian conquest, and then the destruction of the first base HaMikdash. Verses 17 through 24 go even further. The list contains maybe nine more generations, according to Malbim, or a staggering 15 more generations, according to the Vilna Gaon, continuing the line of the house of David, taking us right through the Babylonian exile into the period of the Reshe Galusa, the exilarchs, who ruled the Jewish community in Persia and Babylonia. Verse 17, Uvnei Yechania, Asir Sha'altiel Beno. The children of Yechania were Asir and Sha'altiel his son. Rav Moshe Eisman calls our attention to the fact that the existence at all of this chain of descendants of the line of David is nothing short of miraculous. Why do I say that? Verse 17, Uvnei Yechania, the children of Yechania? The sons of Yechania? That should shock us. In the book of Yirmiyahu 22, the prophet prophesied about the wicked Yechania that God declares, If Yechania, son of Yehoiakim, king of Yehuda, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear him off. So says God, condemn this man to childlessness, a man who will see no success in his days, None of his children will ever sit on David's throne again or rule over Yehuda. And yet here we find B'nai Yechania, the children of Yechania, as if nothing has happened. Even more incredible, his grandson is Zerubbabel, who leads the Jewish people back to Israel from the Babylonian exile. Says the prophet Haggai, Bayom hahu neum Hashem tzavakos. On that day, says God, Ekachacha Zerubbabel ben Sha'altiel avdi, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sha'altiel, my servant. Neum Hashem v'samticha kachosam. I'll place you 
like a signet ring. Ki v'chovacharti, I've chosen you. Neum Hashem tzivakos, says God. Something huge must have happened to bring about a complete turnaround of Yechonia's fate. From childless to father of redemption. Gidola tshuva, how great is tshuva, the capacity to change, the capacity to repent, says the Rambam in Hilchos tshuva. Tshuva can bring a person far from God and draw him near to God's presence. Yesterday, this person felt hated by God. He was despicable, distant, and abhorrent. And today, he's beloved, cherished, near and dear to God. With regard to Yehonyahu and his wickedness, says the Rambam, Hashem says to condemn him to childlessness. But when in exile, Yehonya did shuva, he reversed himself, he returned to God. And to that extent, God reversed the decree against him. He granted Yehonya children. He promised to place his grandson Zerubavel as the same signet ring that he had torn off previously. So Yehonya was literally the last remaining person in the line of the kingdom of David. In his wickedness, he nearly took the entire dynasty out with him. Incredibly, against all odds, in a dark and despair of a dungeon, rejected apparently by God, having backed himself into a spiritual corner, Yehonya found the courage to take the awesomely demanding step of true tshuva, he returned to God. He returned to his true self. He returned to his potential. He turned himself inside out and he reversed the damage. He remade his life. In a dark hole, in a most private moment, he transformed himself into a hero. And God welcomed him and loved him and transformed his words of banishment into a blessing for children and for royalty. I shall place you as a signet ring. It's a private redemption. But it's not only private, because Yehonya, that man condemned to die childless, discovered capacity in himself to acknowledge his sins. He reversed a decree and became the father and continued the line that leads straight to Melech HaMashiach. And it's all in those two little words, Uvne Yehonya, the sons of Yehonya. Verse 19, Uvne Fedaya Zerubavel Vishim'i. The sons of Fedayah were Zerubavel and Shimi, Uven Zerubavel, Meshulam, Vechanania, Ushlomi Sachosam. The son of Zerubavel was Meshulam, also Hanania, and Shlomis, their sister. Why is Zerubavel here listed as a son of Pedayah? Everywhere else, he's called the son of Shaltiel. Malbim explains that Pedayah and Shaltiel were brothers. Shaltiel died childless. Pedayah married Shaltiel's widow. That's the mitzvah of Yibum, leveret marriage. Their child, Zerubavel, was born the son of Pedayah, but as is the purpose of Yibum, Zerubavel in some ways becomes a perpetuation of the life of Shaltiel, the deceased uncle. Ibn Ezra says also that Pedayah and Shaltiel were brothers, but he explains slightly differently that Pedayah was Zerubavel's biological father and Shaltiel was alive and he raised and educated Zerubavel and thus is credited as a father. Zerubavel's name means literally planted in Bavel, planted in Babylonia. At this point, during the Babylonian exile, Zerubavel was the only remaining direct descendant of David HaMelech, via Yechonia, his grandfather, and he was to be the link connecting the future of the Jewish people with their past under King David. 
So Zerubbabel, this seed planted in Babylonia, embodies the hope of all redemption. As he sprouts, so sprouts the kingdom of David, literally as well as figuratively. Verse 22, Uvnei Shechaniah Shemayah, the children of Shechaniah are Shemayah, the children of Shemayah, Chatush and Yigal, and Variach and Naariah, and Shaphat, making six, the son of Naariah, Elio Enai, and Chizkiah and Azrikam, in all three, and the children of Elio Enai, Hodavyao and El Yashiv, Philayah and Akuv and Yohanan and Deliah and Anani, make seven in all, concludes the chapter. Anani, my cloud. This is Melech HaMashiach. This is the king from the house of David who will rule in the messianic era, the time of perfection, the time of all goodness, the time of redemption. So says the Midrash. If there's one lesson we've learned in chapter 3, it's that the greatest mystery may not be the question of when God plans for that final goodness to come. It might really be the question of when will we have the courage and humility to be ready for him? Can we turn our lives around? Who are we waiting for, if not ourselves? Thank you for learning together with me. Le'ilui Nishmas, Rose Foreman, Rachel Rachel Bas Arye Leib, and Rachel Zeitlin.